Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. You've been hearing on the news that yesterday and today, the International Court of Justice has been hearing South Africa's claim that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza and hearing Israel's defense. For example, South Africa says Israel is targeting not just Hamas, but all Palestinians in Gaza, and that the level of Israel's killing is so extensive that nowhere in Gaza is safe. Israel presented its case today. Uh, What they said going into it was that they're only killing as many civilians as necessary to stop Hamas from staging more attacks like the one on October 7th, an attack that Israel says was itself with genocidal intent, which Israel emphasizes was the most deadly attack anywhere on Jews since the Holocaust. So we'll see how the court rules and to what effect. Meanwhile, since yesterday's show, the U.S. and Great Britain have become more directly involved in the shooting war in the region, dropping bombs that reportedly struck at least 60 targets in 16 locations around Yemen, aiming at the military capabilities of the Iran-backed Houthi rebels. President Biden said, quote, these strikes are in direct response to unprecedented Houthi attacks against international maritime vessels in the Red Sea, including the use of anti-ship ballistic missiles for the first time in history, unquote, from President Biden. We'll talk about both these developments now with Julian Borger, the Guardian's World Affairs Editor. He was previously a correspondent in the U.S., the Middle East, Eastern Europe, and the Balkans. He is the author, as some of you may know, of the book The Butcher's Trail, How the Search for Balkan War Criminals Became the World's Most Successful Manhunt, published in 2017. He has an article in The Guardian now saying the Gaza case now being heard could usher in a new age of greater relevance for the 75-year-old International Genocide Convention. And he has an article called Strikes on Houthis Could Bring Biden Closer to the Regional War He Has Sought to Avoid. Julian, thank you for coming on. Welcome back to WNYC. Pleasure to be with you. And we'll get to the arguments of both sides between Israel and South Africa. But would you explain to our listeners first what the International Court of Justice is? It's not the same as the International Criminal Court. What's the difference? Uh, The difference is that the International Court of Justice is there to regulate disputes between states. It doesn't attribute uh, individual blame for uh, criminal acts. Uh, There's one about uh, uh, adjudicating in uh, disputes between nations. And this, on this case, a dispute, a dispute over the interpretation of the uh, Genocide Convention. And how is this case being heard? Is it just lawyers for the two countries making oral arguments, or do they present witnesses and documentary evidence and other things? No, this is uh, lawyers... Uh, for each side, as you said, presenting arguments. Uh, the Israeli lawyers wanted to put on a, a, a film um, of uh, the footage taken with the Hamas attack on the 7th of October to illustrate the context in which the war in Gaza is going on, and that was turned down. So it really has just been a question of, of oral arguments uh, before the judges. 
Who are the judges in this case and who selects them? They are elected by the General Assembly. There are 15 uh, judges from all over the world, plus another two uh, for this case, one from South Africa uh, and one from Israel. The Israeli government could have ignored this charge and just criticized it from afar rather than showing up in court to officially defend the way they're fighting the war. Why did they choose to participate? I I think they saw this case as a uh, severe threat in terms of whether their international standing, uh, they could see that it had galvanized uh, a lot of uh, interest around the world, particularly in what we call the, the global south, because it was brought by South Africa, uh, seen as this is the, the, the global south in a way, taking Israel to, to court. So uh, it, just diplomatically in terms of Israel's global standing, uh, I think the Israeli government just felt that this is one thing that they couldn't duck and you know, something they felt strongly about that they had arguments to make. And on it coming from the Global South, as you describe it, uh, you write that the intervention by South Africa, a state not involved in the war, after all, is extremely rare, but not the first. Would you give us a previous example? Yes. The Gambia, a few years ago, 2019, uh, took Myanmar uh, to the uh, ICJ uh, for its treatment of the Rohingya uh, and... uh, presented this as a, a, a genocide case. Uh, and the, the court in that case uh, ruled that under the Geneva uh, G- Genocide Convention, outside uh, states could bring genocide cases against other states, even if they weren't directly harmed or directly involved in the conflict in question, because it was the duty of, uh, of every state to bring such matters to the international community. And so that suggests, that ruling, which they made in uh, 2022, uh, suggests that the precedent has been set for what you might call third-party states to bring genocide cases to the ICJ. Now, listeners, I don't want the phones to devolve into a predictable, polarized, your side is the real monster, no, your side is the real monster, as often happens with Middle East conversations. But we do want to let you in as well, and we understand that people feel very strongly on both sides of this, and we can take a few phone calls for The Guardian's World Affairs Editor, Julian Borger, on the International Court of Justice case, or, and we will get to this, the latest fighting involving the U.S. and the U.K., and the Iran-backed Houthis in Yemen, 212-433-WNYC, call or text 212-433-9692. And Julian, why genocide, people will ask, according to South Africa, and not some lesser war crimes charge, let's say? I think the common understanding of genocide is an attempt to wipe out a whole people like the Holocaust in the 1940s or the Rwandan genocide of the 90s, which many observers would say this is not, even though Israel clearly is willing to kill thousands of civilians to get more quickly at the Hamas fighters and more safely for its troops. Controversial, obviously. And we know even President Biden is criticizing how they're fighting the war with respect to civilian casualties. But maybe not the same as how we think of genocide, the argument goes. It's just the most monstrous word that 
Israel's enemies want to tag it with to make it look as bad as possible. The argument goes. Is South Africa addressing that possible difference? Yes, absolutely. In their presentations uh, yesterday, they laid out the provisions of the Genocide Convention, which referred to uh, the it refers to attempts to destroy a, a, a people or a nation uh, as a whole or in part. So, it, the nature of the convention doesn't say you have to be seeking to just kill everyone in that group, which of course was the case in the Holocaust. That was the aim. Uh, it, it is a, an intent to. Uh, wipe out at least a part of it and destroy uh, its the things that make it uh, a people, a nation, so culture, economy, and so on, uh, and a way, a sort of attempt to wipe it off the, the map. And they've pointed not just to the, the, the blanket bombing uh, techniques that the IDF have used, but also uh, the deprival, uh, depriving uh, the uh, population there of water, uh, humanitarian supplies. And they also pointed to some of the rhetoric that has come out of the Israeli government, uh, talking about uh, Gazans as human animals, for example, uh, talking about shifting uh, members of uh, the covenant, talking about shifting the whole population out of Gaza, uh, right. And then you so, had so the things, things Israel would say things that that individual uh, cabinet members have said. It's not yes. co- country policy. It is not stated policy, and that is a point that Israel and Israel uh, lawyers made today. That these were these were individual statements. I mean, it doesn't in, uh, help the case that some of them came from the prime minister uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. For example, his, his, his reference to Amalek, uh, Old Testament story of how the Israel, Israelites were told by God to go and wipe out an entire other uh, tribe, the Amaleks, uh, and uh, were told to kill every man, woman, and child. So they pointed to this, the, Israeli, the, the South Africans pointed to this as incitement. Uh, and the, the Israelis came back today and said, well, these are... Things said in the heat of the moment, they are taken out of context, uh, and it is not Israeli government policy. The policy of the IDF is to try and discriminate between civilians uh, and uh, military targets to try and minimize uh, uh, harm to the civilian population and to try and to bring humanitarian assistance into Gaza. They say these are the, the real stated aims of Israel as a state. Yes. Um, And I see this quote from the um, Israeli lawyer Tal Becker in, you know, in the proceeding from just a short time ago. This is in the New York Times. It says there can hardly be a charge more false and more malevolent than the allegation against Israel of genocide. The lawyer said Israel is in a war of defense against Hamas um, and against Hamas, not the Palestinian people, the quote concludes. And I'm sure Israel would like to cross-examine a representative from Hamas if they could, you know? So does does Israel's defense include, or did Africa's argument uh, address the argument that 
Hamas has vowed more October 7th, if they're able, and Hamas has a policy of embedding the fighters among civilians so that Israel has to kill civilians, Israel would say, in pursuit of the Hamas fighters. Yeah, this is an argument that, that, that the Israeli lawyers made today, that, that the South African case had sort of omitted the fact that among uh, the, uh, the population was this group that has uh, carried out this horrendous massacre on uh, 7th of October and has vowed to do it again and has vowed to destroy Israel as a nation. And so the Israeli argument was the whole case was being brought out of context uh, and that if the court was to uh, issue the provisional measures, uh, sort of interim measures uh, that South African was calling for that included a ceasefire, it would be tying Israel's hands behind their back and making them defenseless in the face of in the face of Hamas. Listener texts: Can Israel or can't Israel? They write counterclaim against Hamas. Yeah, they could. They could bring a case against Hamas to uh, the ICJ. Uh, it's not a, It's not the route that they have taken. Uh, but it's significant, though, in terms of, of the legal status, is that whatever um, they say about Hamas's attack, uh, the horrendous attack on 7th of October, which hundreds of civilians were killed, it does not directly impact the status of the, uh, the analysis of uh, the Israeli campaign, in that one genocide does not justify another. Uh, it doesn't it, under the law under the genocide convention. It does not matter what happened before. Uh, that does not mitigate the crime of genocide. And another listener writes: Why South Africa? Why not Jordan or Pakistan or Iran? Yes, it's a really good question. Why? Why South Africa? Oh, there's, there's a lot of politics here. It's kind of surprising in a way that um, before. Gambia, no other countries had tried to do this because there's a way in which one country, it doesn't matter the power uh, of that country, can bring a major power into court, put them in court, uh, even if they're not involved in whatever conflict is going on, and hold that major power to account. So in terms of looking at poor global South countries seeking to redress the the uh the balance the imbalance of powers in the world uh, it seems a very inviting avenue uh and uh, there are various reasons why it, it hasn't happened in the past partly because uh when it, they've tried to do it in the past uh countries from smaller countries have wanted a big european power to to take the case uh, into the court uh, and didn't want to do it on the uh, on their own. Now that's changed, um, uh, and I think a, a growing feeling in among poor developing countries that the whole uh, structure of international relations, international institutions, is uh, uh, slanted against them, uh, and so there's a growing sort of ideological feeling 
that we can do this on our own. We can hold the powerful uh, nations of the world to account. And, and I think that shift is what has brought the South Africa, South Africa, which projects itself as a leader uh, in the global South, as uh, that is what lies behind this South African case. Yeah. Um, supporters of Israel say, and I don't know if this came up in their formal defense in court today, um, but that they are singled out and treated differently than other countries and that it's anti-Semitism in that respect. So the question is, what about other things going on in the world right now, they would ask, that could hypothetically be labeled genocide, what China is doing to the Uyghur Muslims there, Human Watch describes that as break their lineage, break their roots, uh, that's really genocide. Or what's happening in Darfur, Human Rights Watch says close to half a million refugees uh, fled to Chad from there last year alone, and they label it mass ethnics, uh, sorry, mass ethnic killings, that's from Human Rights Watch. 450,000 refugees and mass ethnic killings. And by contrast, Israel doesn't want to resettle Gaza with Israelis. So is Israel raising that claim that it's being singled out as a matter of bias? And is South Africa being required to, or did they voluntarily address it? Uh, yeah, that is a really interesting uh, question. And, and South Africa here could be held up for hypocrisy because they have hosted, uh, in particular, uh, Sudanese figures who've been uh, accused, in one case, of uh, Sudanese president, Amr al-Bashir, indicted for uh, genocide acts in, in uh, Darfur. They've hosted them, and then uh, they have not... Um, uh, and they even... There was a time when Vladimir Putin also uh, facing crimes against humanity charges, uh, were, was invited to South Africa. So they have not been consistent. When it comes to other countries, I mean, uh, we mentioned that Myanmar was brought to the ICJ for, uh, for genocide. Uh, Ukraine has brought Russia to the ICJ for genocide. Um, uh, the ICC has brought genocide, genocide um, or rather the uh, Hague war crimes tribunals on uh, Yugoslav and Rwanda brought genocide cases. So it's not mm -hmm. entirely right. true that Israel is alone here. Good point about China. It, maybe it's a, a shoe we're waiting to drop. Who brings China to the ICJ? And with Julian Borger, the Guardian's World Affairs Editor, Ed in the Bronx, you're on WNYC. Hi, Ed. Hi. Um, I, I would start by just saying I don't, uh, I'm not aware of China carpet bombing the uh, Uyghurs, so I think that's a false analogy to try to, to draw some kind of comparison to why are we being singled out. I mean, you're being singled out because you're committing genocide against, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of civilians, not combatants. Sorry, you can't. Um, well, we could get we could we could get into well, okay, the we I could get I, into the details of what China is doing to the Uyghurs, but that's that's you know not really for this segment yeah, yeah, yeah. in, in yeah, such yeah. So, detail. But, so, no, but you, Ed, continue. Go ahead. Up, you you brought it up. You brought that up about the the Uyghur analogy. And that's why I'm commenting on it. Now, the the reason why I called was I asked uh, your yeah. uh, screener 
two questions, basically. One, uh, what would a ICJ uh, uh, decision, let's say, a finding that Israel, in fact, and it's not just the IDF, it's Israel, uh, 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 this mass uh, uh, destruction of a people, and it's not just what's happening in Gaza, it's also what's happening in West Bank. Let's look at it in totality. Uh, and it's not just happening these last couple of months, it's been happening over decades. Uh, the, the bottom line is, is the people, uh, uh, you know, South Africa is speaking up for a lot of people around the world, including there's a sign in the upper Manhattan that says, we stand united with Palestine. Why is that? Because people sort of tend to root for underdogs, people that are being uh, held uh, uh, in, in intolerable situations. So what could the ICJ decision do to, to, to mitigate the problems in the Middle East? And also, can the ICJ, does it have jurisdiction to look at past uh, uh, genocides like the ones that have occurred uh, on this continent and other continents, whether in the recent past or, uh, 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 you know, more distant past? Ed, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, so it's a good question um, there. What can the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, do if it finds that Israel is guilty of genocide? Well, a decision on genocide uh, will probably take years, but what it can do in the next few weeks uh, is issue what are called provisional measures, which has said, while we can contemplate this, uh, do this uh, to uh, so as to uh, mitigate any risk that genocide might take place. And so by issuing these provisional measures, it's not necessarily saying that genocide um, is taking place, but there is a risk that it could happen. Uh, and so it's quite possible that they will issue such provisional measures. And the ones that the South Africa has asked for includes a ceasefire, but also involve human, uh, opening the gates to humanitarian supplies in a, a way that in, they haven't up to, up to now. They have mm -hmm. very limited supplies of uh, uh, food, water, uh, medicine, and so on. And so we could see that. And what, do, what, what do you think would happen if they do that? Would, at yeah. that point, uh, does everyone expect Israel, though it participated in the proceeding, would then ignore that direction? Yeah, people expect uh, uh, that the, uh, Israel would denounce it, and they already are uh, denouncing the whole uh, process. Uh, uh, made quite clear they, they will uh, not follow any provisional uh, measures laid down by the court. Court does not have enforcement uh, mechanisms. It could then go to the Security Council. Again, the US will be in a difficult uh, position uh, if it, again, it's a lone veto uh, against uh, the enforcement of these provisional measures. But overall, it will, I think, significantly increase the international political pressure on Israel, uh, you know, around the world. And that pressure is already immense. But uh, to have the court come up against you and for an international court founded uh, in the aftermath of the Holocaust to issue these orders, uh, I think that would put Israel in a very, uh, very difficult uh, international situation. Do you think such a ceasefire order from the court would also be stated as applying to Hamas 
or would the court not reference Hamas and implicitly take a position that Hamas violence is justified because it's a resistance organization against a powerful country? Oh, I don't think it would go there at all. Uh, and it may not uh, order a blanket ceasefire in the light of uh, Israel's uh, point that it is a conflict. And if Israel was uh, uh, was alone to stop fighting, it would be defenseless in the Israeli argument against uh, Hamas. So it may not issue provisional measures that calls for a blanket ceasefire. It may say, we need you to stop the manner in which you were carrying out this war. I'm just speculating here, mm-hmm. um, but these are the options. These are the options on the on the table. In our remaining minutes, let's go on to the other development in the last day with Iran-backed Houthi rebels attacking commercial vessels in the Red Sea in what the Houthis say are attacks meant to support the Palestinian cause. The U.S. and U.K. launched what The Guardian is reporting as 60 strikes against 16 Houthi targets. Your article on this in The Guardian is called Strikes on Houthis Could Bring Biden Closer to the Regional War That He Sought to Avoid. So, Julian, does it appear to you that the Houthis or their backers in Iran are trying to draw the U.S. and the U.K. further in? Yes, they are. They're they're, uh, seeking to inflict uh, pain uh, on Israel, uh, on Israel and the U.S. and their allies in the region. Uh, the ultimate goal of, of Iran is to drive the U.S. Uh, out of the region, the U.S. and its allies in the region. Uh, so uh, the more uncomfortable it can make life for uh, Western powers and Israel, uh, the more it's fulfilling its aims. From what we've seen up to now, it doesn't look like Iran wants a full-on war. It wants to avoid a situation where it finds itself in conflict with Israel and U.S. in a major war. It far prefers to operate with proxies, partners uh, in the region like Hezbollah in Lebanon, like the Houthis in Yemen. Let's take one phone call on this. And it's Justin in Clinton Hill. You're on WNYC. Justin, hello. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for taking my call. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, Yeah, so I'm a lifelong Democratic voter. I voted somewhat reluctantly for Joe Biden. And seeing these moves, which appear to be only aimed at really protecting economic security. Meanwhile, as you've mentioned, we can get into all of the things that the Israelis have done killing children by the thousands. And from this issue, seeing escalation, which was an illegal act, didn't get approved by Congress, and seeing that the only thing he's offering us is more war, whether it's in Ukraine, no plan for how that war is going to be resolved. In fact, last year, he and Boris Johnson um, intervened in an effort to try to make a peace deal between Russia and Ukraine. Now Russia is in a much stronger position, and there's no end in sight. So all of this just points to Joe Biden is a war hawk president, and the na- I'm so frustrated by the naivety of, including from this show sometimes, that, oh, yeah, shucks, Biden is really w- working hard to, you know, quell the, the atrocities of Israel. 
Meanwhile, they've offered no conditions. And supposedly there's these back, backroom deals happening. I, without material things on the line, right. it's all talk. That's certainly true that they have not put any conditions out there on the line. And uh, that's certainly something we've talked about multiple times and with members of Congress um, on, on the show as well. Uh, so, yes, and I hear that your critique is even broader than that with respect to Biden. Sounds like you don't like the war in Ukraine either, and you consider Biden a warmonger uh, for that conflict, which— we hear you, but it's you know out of the scope of this segment. Uh, but to wrap up, Julian, what does either side see as an endpoint? And by either side, I'm talking really now not about Israel and Hamas, but um, the U.S. UK versus Iran and the Houthis. What? Why do the U.S. and UK think escalating will make the Houthis and Iran stop it? And what does that side hope to accomplish by disrupting non-military trade ships? I mean, yeah, the U.S. and allies um, are in a fairly difficult position in that they, um, I I think, try to avoid this. uh, Biden put off a uh, response for several weeks uh, to the shelling of, of ships. Uh, he got a coalition together to defend uh, commercial shipping. Uh, and then they issued this warning, don't do it again because there'll be consequences. And the Houthis kept on firing. Uh, and you know it is not just economic impact. There was close to an environmental disaster when one of these ships almost, uh, one of these missiles almost hit a contain a tanker ship carrying jet fuel uh so these are these are big stakes i I think probably they don't expect to deter uh houthis because what the houthis are after is sort of in the international role uh they want to be seen as a leading figure in what they call and iran calls the axis of resistance against the west and israel this puts them really on the stage and in a way, this is why they're doing it. It's out of solidarity for Gaza. Um, but they see themselves uh, as this, not just a Yemeni player, but a go global player in this struggle with the West. And so, in a way, you could argue, and, and some analysts have argued, that these strikes only strengthen them. It makes them easier to recruit. Uh, it, it raises their profile and it's what they want. Julian Borger, the world, the, the Guardian's World Affairs Editor and also author of the 2017 book, The Butcher's Trail, How the Search for Balkan War Criminals Became the World's Most Successful Manhunt. Julian, we really appreciate this appearance. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you.